Inj is not in the book of Acts, you will have noticed from the worship bulletin, but in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, as we read the opening verses of Galatians, from verse 1 to verse 14. Galatians chapter 2, from verse 1 to verse 14, which is speakers, you remember, in the great council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, which we have been studying recently on these Sunday mornings. Fourteen years later, and it is Paul writing this, of course, fourteen years later I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. Now let me pause there and remind you that while privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been given the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been given the task of preaching the gospel to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and that they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was in the wrong. Now, clearly, this was a visit by Peter to Antioch just immediately before the Council of Jerusalem. Before certain men came from James, he used, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who, be, who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. May God indeed bless to our understanding the reading from his most holy word. Now, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we have been together as a congregation engaged in the study 
of one of the most central chapters in the book of Acts on these Sunday mornings as we are working our way steadily through the book of Acts. Chapter 15, that has dealt with the great and significant council of Jerusalem, the first general council of the early Christian church. Summoned, you remember, to deal with that profound and important issue of what constitutes the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the preaching of Christ alone sufficient for salvation, or do we need Christ plus something else in order to be saved, namely circumcision? And while I thought last Sunday morning, having preached on three occasions upon that great and significant council, we would be passing on to chapter 16 of the book of Acts, I was arrested by the reminder that there is still something to say about Acts 15, and in particular, about one of the leading spokesmen at that great first church council. A final word, in other words, to be said about the Jerusalem Council, not found in the 15th of Acts at all, but in the second chapter of the book of Galatians. As we consider together this leading figure whose speech in the Council of Jerusalem was determinative in some respects of the final result, a man who was greatly used of God at the Council of Jerusalem none other than the Apostle Peter himself. And what we read of this morning in Galatians 2 was nothing other than a snatch of Peter's own biography provided for us by his fellow apostle and friend, the Apostle Paul. Now, why am I turning to this particular passage this morning? Well, beloved, the reason is very simple, and it is this that not only, as we have seen, was the Council of, the, of Jerusalem a dramatic turning point in the life of the church, and indeed the very reason why you and I as Gentile Christians, because I'm assuming that very probably there are no Jewish Christians here this morning, the very reason why we as Gentile Christians are sitting here in this building this morning. A turning point for the church but also, and here is the real reason for Galatians 2, it was a turning point in the life of Peter as well. And we are greatly indebted to the Apostle Paul for providing this picture for us of Peter, which we would never otherwise have had. It's not there in Acts 15. But God the Holy Ghost saw fit to include it in the sacred scriptures nevertheless in a letter that the Apostle Paul was to write. And what we need to remember is that behind that bold and persuasive speech of Peter's at the Council of Jerusalem that in some measure determined the outcome and result of what happened there was a man who had only recently been caught and snared in serious sin. And beloved, I am turning to this passage this morning because I have a pastoral purpose in mind. 
Perhaps some of you, perhaps I myself as your pastor, very recently have been snared in some kind of sin or other and caught in its coils and entrapped. And like Peter, we have disgraced the name of the Lord Jesus and dishonored the profession of faith that we have made before God's people. And that's why we need the lessons of Galatians chapter 2 and particularly verses 11 through 14, to which I invite you to turn with me this morning. And we're going to see three things together. There is in this passage Peter's exhibition of folly. And secondly, there is Paul's exercise of fidelity or faithfulness. And thirdly, there is Peter's experience of forgiveness. Now, my dear friends, what this passage is going to emphasize for us, and let me lay this out before we begin the study of it, is that even the most mature Christian amongst us may suddenly be seriously tempted by Satan who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and our maturity in Christ is no guarantee that we may not fall into the temptation and deeply dishonor the Lord whom we love that we may fall into serious sin and hypocrisy, that we may besmirch the gospel and dishonor the name we love. And we're going to learn, I believe, above all else, that the secret of spiritual maturity, of growing up into Christ, is not that we as men and women are infallible, but rather that we are humble in the presence of God and in one another, in one another's presence. So look with me at these three uh, divisions of this passage in Galatians 2. First of all, I invite you to see with me Peter's exhibition of folly. And you find that in verse 12. Let's read that verse again together. Before certain men came from James writes Paul, and he's speaking of what is happening in Antioch before the Council of Jerusalem had met. Before certain persons came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, so far throughout the book of Acts, until we've come to this very point of Peter's experience, the picture of Peter that we have had is that of a leader. As he took the lead, you remember, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we've had the picture of Peter as a great preacher in Acts 2 and his great sermon recorded for us in Acts chapter 3. We've seen him in Acts as one of the foundation stones that Christ was using to build his church. The Lord Jesus, of course, being supremely the foundation stone. But we've seen him as a chosen apostle whose message and ministry was largely to be to the Jewish people, to bring them into the faith of Christ. And it's been a picture of stability and strength up to this point. 
But now, look you, something else profoundly different is happening. A very different picture unfolds of this man that we see described in detail in this passage of Galatians, and we'll look at in detail in a moment. But what is happening? In an hour of weakness, to summarize, this great leader of this church, the early church, this foundation stone chosen and picked by the Lord Jesus is suddenly cowed into submission by a little pressure group that comes down from Jerusalem to Antioch and says that what Peter is doing in eating and fellowshipping with Gentile Christians who have never been circumcised is utterly and totally wrong. And as these members of the circumcision party come from Jerusalem, suddenly Peter realizes they are there so that he will toe the line. And he begins to act inconsistently. This great man begins to act hypocritically and he begins to deny the very gospel by which he has been saved. And that's why, you see, we need to examine carefully what happened, this exhibition of Peter's folly. Now look at it there in verse 12 as you have your Bible open. Before certain men came from James, that is in Jerusalem, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. So Paul tells us that when he was visiting Antioch before the council of Jerusalem, he had first enjoyed table fellowship with Jews and Gentiles who had become Christians without making any distinction and any difference. He was equally welcome in a Jewish Christian home. He was equally welcome in a Gentile Christian home. And at the Lord's table, we can imagine in that fellowship of Christians in Antioch, there was Peter in the congregation, happy to partake of the elements of bread and wine without making any distinction that he sat in the midst of a largely Gentile group of Christian brothers. And of course, this was the natural and necessary thing for Peter to do. For had he not already been taught... You remember, through his ministry to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, through the vision that descended from heaven where he saw a sheet with all kinds of animals in it, clean and unclean, and the voice came to him and said to him, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And he realized later that the significance of that vision was that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men through the gospel of every nation under heaven, those who fear him and do what is right. So it was very natural, perfectly natural, for Peter to share in Gentile fellowship. He realized there were no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven, no barriers of culture or nationality or color or anything else. When God cleanses a man, that man is clean and is fit as a brother or sister for my fellowship in Christ. And Peter knew this. 
And in these early days in Antioch, there was unrestricted fellowship and joy in each other's home and at the Lord's table to the mutual enrichment of all. For are not all one in Christ Jesus? And that was Peter's initial stance. But look you at Peter's ensuing change. But, verse 12, continuing, when they arrived, these men from Jerusalem purporting to come with the authority of the Apostle James, he began to draw back, says Paul. And there was, in other words, a change of stance upon their arrival from Jerusalem. And the reason for Peter's being afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group was this that here were men who were ultra-conservative in the church, the very right wing of the Christian church, professing indeed to be Christians, but who had come wrongly in their understanding of the gospel to put such an emphasis upon the need for circumcision that it became a denial of the gospel of grace, as we have seen. And Peter began to feel the pressure. He began to feel the need to come into line with these ultra-conservative brethren. And it now seemed preposterous for Peter to have fellowship with uncircumcised Gentile believers as he had done freely before. And Peter was ensnared in a serious sin. Now, we don't know whether it was his old fear of human derision. Remember Peter in the Gospels, how he was desperately afraid of people deriding him. He wanted to be thought well of. He tried to turn Jesus from the cross for that very reason. Lord, these things shall not be happening to you. Or maybe it was his old anti-Gentile prejudice rising to the surface in Peter's life again. Or maybe it was a combination of both. We don't really know. But whatever, he began to withdraw from Gentile fellowship in the church in Antioch. Now, of course, this didn't mean that Peter really believed deep down in his heart that what these men were teaching was the truth of the gospel. But he acted as if he did believe it. He acted as if a superior Christian is one who has been circumcised and is of the Jewish faith. He acted as if the circumcision group who had come down from Jerusalem were the elite in the church. And the whole thrust of the passage, you see, as Paul describes it there, is this, that he began to be deeply hypocritical in his behavior. And he was detracting from the sufficiency of the gospel and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the moment, as we have seen, that we add anything to the gospel as a condition of salvation, we have said, in effect, the gospel of God's grace, the death of our Lord upon the cross, is no longer sufficient to save men by itself. And the great apostle, 
the foundation stone of the Christian church, even at this advanced stage of his Christian experience, is casting a cloud over the truth of God's word. Now, beloved, do you see with me that this is a very serious sin? This ensuing stance of Peter's. It's not only wrong, it was deeply hurtful. Can you imagine the pain and the heart soreness of his brothers and sisters in the Lord who had been converted out of pagan Gentile backgrounds, who had come to know Peter's fellowship in their own homes and recognized him as a dear brother in the Lord. And now he's saying, I won't go and fellowship with you anymore. I won't darken your door anymore. I won't sit with you in the congregation in Antioch at the Lord's table, but we'll be off to one side, a separate group, a church within a church. Can you imagine the terrible disharmony in the congregation? And as you look again at verse 12 and following, you see that there was another effect as well of this ensuing stance that his action drove a wedge between two of the best friends in the whole of the New Testament. Who were they? Paul and Barnabas. Such was the hypocrisy, says Paul. But not only were others drawn away by Peter's example, but Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy as well. And it drove a wedge between two of the greatest friends in the New Testament. And moreover, it pushed the young New Testament church to the very edge of the precipice. Because if this issue had not been settled by Paul's faithfulness, as we'll see in a moment, there would inevitably have been two churches formed, a Jewish one and a Gentile one, and never the twain would have met. And that united witness but the whole of the book of Acts gives to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of Jews and Gentiles would forever have been silenced. Now listen, my dear friends, have you ever been snared in sin in the same way that Peter was? The similar tactics of Satan catching you when you're well on in the Christian life by something you never thought you'd be guilty of. Catching you perhaps at an unprepared moment as Peter was, who had gone down there with a heart flowing over with love to his brethren in Antioch, rejoicing that Gentiles in great numbers had been converted to Christ. And in that very moment of Peter's security, Satan caught him, playing on inherent weaknesses in Peter's character, old sins rising to the surface again, very probably. And all beginning with a very little thing, a very little thing, circumcision, just a small surgical operation on a man's body. What importance is that, really? But it leads to far more terrible and serious consequences as I think we've already seen. So there's Peter's exhibition of folly. Now there's Paul's example of fidelity. Look at this. It's there in verse 11 and in verse 13 and 14. 
This was a very dangerous hour, as I've explained to you, for the Christian church. And it was saved by the insight of one man, the Apostle Paul. And you know, we might well think this morning, how often in the history of the Christian church, in moments of great danger for the continuance of the church, has God chosen one man as the single instrument to turn back the error and be the human instrument by which the church's very life was preserved. You think of Martin Luther at the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. You think of John Calvin in Geneva, who recovered the pristine purity and beauty of the whole counsel of God in Scripture that had been overborne by the rubbish of men's inventions for centuries in the dark ages of the church. You think in, of John Knox in Scotland, a single instrument raised up by God through whom, by God's grace, the whole nation was turned to the Protestant and the Reformed faith. And so it is with Paul here. Thank God for the insight of this man. Thank God for his razor-sharp brain that could see through all the folds of the outward coverings of this issue, right down to the kernel of it, that it was an attack on the very gospel of grace itself. And we should bless God for his unrivaled love for the Lord Jesus that enabled him to see through the hypocrisy of Peter's act. Now, there's just two things I want you to notice in verses 11 and 13 through 14. There was Paul's challenge, and there was Paul's specific charge. Now, look at verse 14. I said to Peter in front of them all, what a challenge. And it's marked by two things, isn't it? that his challenge was related to principle. Now listen, brothers and sisters, when you are dealing with another brother or sister who is caught in some fault, how do you go about correcting him? The answer is here. You always relate your correction to principle. You don't do it out of some petty personality clash. You don't do it because some temporal, temperamental difference has arisen between you and another person in the congregation. You don't do it, beloved, because you've got an out-for-a-fight mentality. You see, here is evidence that Paul deeply respected Peter and showed it. But Paul knew that Peter was not being obedient to the revealed will of God at this juncture of his life, and Paul was being obedient. And principle came before persons, and principle came even before peace in the church, as it always should. And there was no way that Paul could be quietly acquiescent in what was going on. It was related to principle. And you notice, too, how Paul did it. It was the direct approach, wasn't it? I opposed him to his face, not behind his back, not by going to the church first and telling the church before he ever told Peter. 
But publicly he did it in front of them all. I opposed him to his face. That is in front of the whole party that he had led astray and caused a scandal by so doing. Because this matter had become public, it could only be mended by a public confrontation of Peter and those involved with him in this deep sin and hypocrisy. That was Paul's challenge. But then you notice his specific charge in verses 13 and 14. He wasn't content to register a protest merely. He saw the issues clearly, that Peter's action was a permanent division in the church, that Peter's action had wronged the saints and dishonored the Lord, as we have seen. And so what Peter needed was radical spiritual surgery to enable him to see the source of the trouble and repent of it swiftly. And so Paul's specific charge was first hypocrisy and secondly not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. In verse 13 it's hypocrisy. And you see, what was in Paul's mind was simply this, that their act was hypocrisy because it was a concealment of their own liberal convictions and an open profession of still adhering to a narrow Pharisaic view. Peter, as we've seen, believed that the gospel was for Gentiles through Christ alone without any need of circumcision or keeping the Jewish laws. But he was concealing his liberal convictions and giving the appearance that he still adhered to a narrow Pharisaic interpretation of the gospel that was wrong. He was acting with hypocrisy. And you see, as I said to you, Peter, in doing this, was saying, in effect, before all of the church, what you need is salvation by Christ, and in the balances, your own circumcision added as a piece of merit that you can bring as well. Now, aren't we caught in that sometimes ourselves? We're orthodox in belief, we say. But all we say, something else is needed for fellowship. It might be baptism, it might be confirmation, it might be the ritual of your particular church or the way you do things, or whisper it softly. It might even be the gift of tongues. Or you can have fellowship with someone who hasn't got tongues, but not real fellowship. How often have you heard that? And you see, all of these things, beloved, are the old Galatian heresy dressed up afresh. And hypocrisy lies at the root of it. And the second thing in his specific charge was this, that Peter was not acting in accord with the truth of the gospel. Now, it's interesting that the Greek word to not act in accord there is the Greek verb orthopodeo that literally translated means to step out rightly. And the picture is a very vivid one. 
because Paul is saying once you have embraced the gospel and embraced Christ, there is a straight and narrow path on which he calls you to walk. And unless you step rightly down that path, one foot after another, in logical sequence, you are going to veer off to one side or veer off to another. And that's exactly what had happened to Peter. Not only was he full of hypocrisy, but he was not stepping rightly. He had veered off, in other words, to the right-hand side with these ultra-conservative false believers. He was off course. And no one, Paul realized, can do that and long maintain fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people. Because it entails disobedience, a lapse in our attitude, and our behavior before the Lord Jesus. Now let me quickly summarize. What do we see then in this great lapse of Peter? A great letdown, yes. Does it call in question Peter's maturity? Yes, to a certain extent it does. But even though we may be mature in Christ, there is the possibility that we may err seriously from the ways and word of God. And as we're going to see as I close in a moment, the essential characteristic, beloved, of our lives, whatever stage we've reached in the Christian life, is not that we are incapable of falling, we are infallible, but rather that we are humble, humility. And this is just what we're about to see as we turn to Peter's experience of forgiveness. Now, of course, in this passage in Galatians, it's not directly referred to, but it is surely referred to in Acts 15 in the speech that Peter made before the council. And you may want to turn to Acts 15 in your Bible and particularly to verse 11. And here is the saving grace in this otherwise shattering and humiliating experience of this great man of God who had risen so high and yet in Antioch apparently had fallen so low. The sheer honesty with which Peter is now able to face Paul's criticism. Now remember that Paul was a junior apostle. Peter, a long-standing apostle of greater and riper experience in some ways. And then you think of Peter's temperament, so volatile, so ready to fly off the handle at the slightest word of criticism. But what you see here is something dramatically different, isn't it? There must have been a facing squarely of his heinous sin a realigning of his action and obedience according to God's word. And this is the sign of real spiritual life and real spiritual maturity. Now listen, beloved, this is in your life today a lesson. It's not just something in the scriptures, old-fashioned and ancient. We all know how different it, difficult it is to take correction and receive criticism. 
how our proud human hearts rise up when someone says to us something we don't like and find it difficult to accept. We close our ears and we shut our minds and we resent it. And we so often have the attitude, don't we, that because I'm a Christian I can't possibly be wrong. Now look what happened quickly in Peter's attitude. The fault was acknowledged. You can see that in Acts 15, verse 11. We're not told this in Acts 2. But it's evident from Peter's speech there in Acts 15, as he began, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice of me that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the truth of the gospel, referring to the incident of the conversion of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and how in verse 11 he summarized his experience and his renewed conviction that no, it is by the gospel that the Gentiles will be saved without any addition, just as we are being saved by the same gospel. You can see the honesty to acknowledge his fault. And without that, no one can possibly grow in grace. But armed with it, the very highest pinnacle in the Christian life is not beyond us to attain. But you notice the second thing that happened. His folly was forsaken. He not only, in other words, admitted a wrong attitude, but he acknowledged a wrong action. And you see his humility, his willingness to grow in grace and in fellowship with others in that he went to the Jerusalem council. And I think, you know, that maybe Paul sat there in the council literally on tenterhooks wondering as Peter rose, would he take my word of correction to heart or is he still part of the Jewish circumcision party? What is he going to say? Knowing full well that what Peter said with his stature in the early church might well determine the issue. And the fact that Peter went and the fact that Peter spoke as he did showed that not only was the fault acknowledged, but the folly was forsaken. And we read in his later letter in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2, the exhortation to rid ourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander, and crave the pure spiritual milk of God's word by which we grow up into our salvation. Isn't it somewhat reminiscent of the very forsaking of hypocrisy we read about in Galatians 2. The folly forsaken. But there's a third thing as I finish. The fellowship was restored. Perhaps the best of all because the rest of the New Testament shows us that Peter did not hold a grudge against Paul at all for exposing his folly at Antioch. But you can read in Second Peter 3 verses 14 through 18 the loving words that Peter expresses concerning his brother Apostle Paul as he warns the Christians the danger of being carried away by lawless men and then refers in these words to Paul just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. What do you see? 
fellowship restored. Paul, a man whom Peter still profoundly respects, and who in some ways, he says, is ahead of Peter in the spiritual life, fellowship in no way broken by the fidelity of Paul in rebuking the hypocrisy of Peter. Beloved, as I finish, are you snared in sin this morning? Have you recently been snared in sin? This passage is for you. And it's possible for all of us to stand where Peter stood. And we dare not be persuaded for one single moment of our own reliability and infallibility, no matter how far along the Christian road we are, no matter how mature we may feel we stand in Christ. We need humility to remember that. We need the grace of God that was so evident in Peter's life. Oh, thank God for it, but enabled him to acknowledge and to turn from his fault and return to fellowship, even with those who had had the painful duty of pointing out that fault and that sin to him. That humble honesty is the key to true spirituality. Well then, thank God for this episode, and let's pray more and more for obedience to God's revealed will and to make these things real in our own lives, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this passage, blessed to our understanding. Make us like Peter, men of a sensitive conscience and of a loving heart and of a willing mind to see our own faults when they're pointed out to us and to restore the fellowship that has been broken and to take off that cloud from over the gospel truth that has been cast upon it by our own inconsistency and hypocrisy and disobedience so that the grace of God triumphs in our lives as it did in Peter's. For Jesus' sake, amen.